So I, um, have, I get allergy shots every week. I have for years. It's been, uh, I, seems like eight years maybe, if I were to guess, eight or nine years. I've been going weekly for allergy shots. Um, and uh, they help, by the way, in case anybody's wondering. They've really helped me. That has nothing to do with what I'm saying here, and I'm not getting any kickback or anything. I still have to pay for my shots, but... Uh, I was in there getting a shot a couple months ago, and one of the nurses that was, uh, uh, she, she just stepped into the room as the other nurse was administering my shots, and um, she asked me, she said, hey, my son and daughter are looking for a church, and um, I want to encourage them to come to your church, but uh, what's going on with the corporate worship thing? What is this thing that y'all do called corporate worship? And I took a moment and tried to explain that. And I, you know, I realized that that, that, that that may be a foreign term to a lot of folks. And I'm hoping that this morning will be an answer to that question. I don't know if that couple ever visited. That couple might be here now. You might be members for all I know, which would be awesome. Um, but this, it, that little story just sort of is a segue into uh, what I introduced this morning is the notion that we're going to be participating in something that's ancient. What we're doing this morning and what we've already done, interestingly enough, is a couple thousand years old. We're going to be participating in something that is an ancient ritual and have been already. And I'm hoping that this passage gives you really an amazing insight into that. We're finishing off a section in the book of Ephesians, if you'd like to turn there. In fact, I would really like for you to turn there. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5. We're finishing up a section... Uh, that has been talking about what the church should be like, what we should move like, how we should interact with one another, some characteristics of life together as a church family. And we're finishing up this section uh, this morning in verses 15 through 20 of chapter 5. And um, in the future Sundays, uh, the couple of, next couple of Sundays, Scott will be preaching from Romans, but then we will be, uh, I'll resume in the book of Ephesians with um, some guidelines and really some structure as to what life should be like in the home. Okay, so we're moving from church family to home uh, context. So if you'd like to read ahead over the next few weeks to sort of prepare yourself for what's in store uh, in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, which might be sort of strange if you're looking at your Bible layout there. It looks like we're starting in verse 22 with the household stuff. But we're going to, verse 21 sort of our overlap. So that's just a heads up for the coming weeks. But this morning we're going to be in verses 15 through 20. We're finishing up a section of, of what I would call imperatives. If you've been around Crosspoint for a period of time, you likely have heard these terms. If you haven't, I'd like to just introduce you to a couple of concepts. Um, our Bibles are mixed, especially in the New Testament letters, are a mixture of indicatives and imperatives. Okay, these are Greek terms. They're not limited to Greek, but what I'm speaking of are Greek indicatives and imperatives. And in some ways you can think about indicatives being something that's indicated and imperative being something that's commanded. Okay, so our Bibles, if you think about your Bible that way, then you can maybe get a glimpse into what's going on in certain passages. In the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters are made up of primarily indicatives. These are the things that God has done for us in Christ. Okay, that's a summary of the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. This is what God has done for us in Christ. He's made us alive together with Christ. He's seated us with Christ. He's raised us with Christ. These are these wonderful, grand truths 
of the gospel. Okay? And then the next chapters, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, we move into the imperatives. These are the indicatives. This is what God has done for us in Christ. And then the remaining chapters are, here's then how we respond. Here's how we move as a church, we're finishing up today, and next as families we'll move into in the coming weeks. So you have to get those things connected, the indicatives to the imperatives. If you live in indicatives and never walk in any imperatives, then you're a lazy, faithless Christian. Says James. (laughs) I mean, I'm not making that up. Now, if you live in the imperatives and disconnect them from the indicatives, you're a legalist. You're a heartless, faithless legalist that's going through a bunch of motions. So you see how important it is to connect the impair or the indicatives to the imperative. So I hope that this morning, maybe that visual will help you connect that there are a lot of indicatives behind the imperatives we're going to this morning. But we're going to be looking at some imperatives of how we should move together as a church. And specifically speaking to what we're doing in corporate worship. <laughs> what is this ancient thing? What is corporate worship? Okay, so I'm going to pick up with verse 15. I'd like to read the whole passage, and then we're going to sort of break it down in three chunks. Okay, let me read our entire passage beginning in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another. I'm adding this just because it's here. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We're going to be looking at the the, the uh, verses 15 through 20. Uh, just before where I stopped just now. And let me tell you the three chunks. Verse 15 and 16 is the first chunk. If you want to sort of label it, you can label it as look carefully. Okay, verse 17 is the next chunk. You can label that as don't be fooled. And the third chunk is verses 18 through 20. Don't get drunk. Okay, those are your labels. We're going to spend the majority of time on the third one, don't get drunk. Okay, but the first one, is look carefully, verses 15 and 16. The second one is don't be fooled, verse 17. And the third is verses 18 through 20, don't get drunk. So let's break these up and let's look at them. Verse 15 and 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Okay, I told you just briefly as I'm giving you the outline of Ephesians, the imperatives pick up in chapter 4. And those imperatives, interestingly enough, follow a, sort of a, a word that's used frequently as walk. Chapter 4 began with the imperative to walk worthy of your calling. And then it moved on in chapter 4 to don't walk as the Gentiles walk. And then walk in holiness. Then walk in love. And then last Sunday was walk as children of light. And now this Sunday is look carefully how you walk. Walk is a figurative term for how you live, how you go about life, how you do life together. And the charge here is to walk wisely, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. This phrase, making the best use of your time, actually means buying time. The term in some uh, 
or the word in some version says redeeming the time. A good way to think about this phrase might be to um, walk carefully, making the best use of your time by buying minutes like they're on closeout. Some of us are big shoppers. You can sort of visualize that like they're, like they're on closeout and we really want to get a deal, snapping up every opportunity we can get. That's the charge. This first little uh, imperative here that we've looked at here in verses 15 and 16 is about the skill of godly living. It's about connecting circumstances to the scripture. It's about uh, an attentiveness to the time while you reflect on God's word in your context, in your lives as you're doing lives. And I, man, I, I cannot overemphasize the value of family Bible study together. Our family has been great about it at times and other times not so great. But the times that we have been great about it, we as a family were able to discuss how do these truths connect to these circumstances. We do the same thing in life groups also. So those of you who are in life group know exactly what I'm talking about. It's where the rubber meets the road. How can we walk wisely um, making the best use of the time and being careful while we're about it? I thought about some ways that I see care in our church family and attentiveness. Some of you have the most amazing homes I have ever seen. And I don't mean grandiose, you know, palaces. I mean, well-kept, like things just in the right place. Some of the ladies in our church, and I think they're primarily the ladies. There might be some guys that do this as well. But some of the ladies, like, really are meticulous about your decorating and your, your accents and the you know, the things that you have all about the house, exercising great care in those things, okay? That's the kind of care that we're talking about. Some of you, um, some of the guys, maybe, there may be some, some ladies that are attentive in this way, but mostly the guys um, I've seen who are very attentive to your lawns, okay? Especially when Brad Cardwell's involved, you have to be really attentive to your lawns. Uh, Brad treats lawns, so some of you don't know that, that's, that's a... a, a Another business that Brad runs, and I asked him just a couple weeks ago, I said, hey, man, can you put something on my yard to make it grow slower? Because it was growing so fast. Some of us exercise some serious care in our lawns, our caring for our lawns. Some of you with your cars, okay? Some of you take really, really good care of your cars. They are immaculate. Some people even won't even sit on their leather seats and sit on towels, like for years at a time. Jeff Willingham's not in here, but that's what he does. I would totally call him out like I just did. He's probably watching over there in the office. He sits on towels. It's bizarre. People just take care of their cars in a, in a way that's just unbelievable. Now, some of you moms who are driving the mom mobiles, I'm not talking about you. All right, I'm going to give you all some margin because the roaches are running around in dune buggies in those things. You can eat a whole meal off the floor, you know, like, oh, Cheerios and Fruit Loops. But the care that some of you take of your cars is really unbelievable. Some of you take great care uh, in, in your, your grooming. Hopefully all of us take some care, but some are like really careful, like having your beard groomed and shaped and things like that. Okay, we're talking about, you know, that, that care is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. Some of you take great care in your attire. Some of you go into meticulous care with your financial portfolios. Now, I don't have a lot of access into this. I just know that some people are really money conscious and know exactly what money is doing and what uh, investments. And Some of you take great care with what you build or what you fix. 
I mean, building some amazing things and fixing some amazing things, really fixing them in some ways better than they were in the first place. Some of you take great care with your cooking and your health. Okay, Some of you put a lot of time into what am I going to put in my body and where does it come from and what's it made from and how processed is it. Some of you too even can tell me, no matter what malady I might be experiencing, that there's an oil for that particular malady and can tell me exactly where to get that substance and how many drops to use on it. Man, that's, let's, let me just tell you, I think that's awesome. I, think, I love the diversity in our church family that I talked to nearly in, the, in the, the examples I just gave. I probably hit nearly everybody in the room. I love the care, meticulous care that we all give to so many things. Keep that up. Okay, it makes you unique. It makes us who we are, a diverse people. But let me encourage you. Whatever, you care, whatever care you put into those things, put more care into your walk. Put more care into your walk. I saw a video on Facebook this week of a couple of guys that adopted a, a, what they thought was one of those little micro pigs. I don't know if that's what they're called, but that's what I call them. Little micro pigs that, you know, the yachts did this too. I got to tell on them. I'm not talking about the yachts, but they were giving this little pig that was supposed to stay tiny, and now he's like 500 pounds, and I think he's baking in somebody's freezer. But these guys adopted this pig thinking it's going to, the biggest it's ever going to be is 70 pounds. Well, the pig now is 650 pounds. They've sold their home and moved to the country They've quit their jobs and now have new jobs so they can support where they live and how they tend to this 650-pound pig that lives in the house. I, saw, I, did, I couldn't watch the whole video, but I at least saw a portion of it where he's, one, of the, one of the guys is laying his head against the pig reading child still baby stories to it. And the pig, the pig is laying there with his nasty eyes closed and fat face and... I'm just going to tell you right now, that is misappropriation of care. <laughs> There's one remedy for a 650-pound pig, and it's called bacon. Bacon. Man, misappropriation of care. Don't look back on your lives and go, man, I misappropriated my attentiveness and my care into something that really in the long term didn't matter a whole lot. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Man, may we be that people. This first exhortation, this first imperative is to look carefully how you walk. Now let's look at the second one briefly in verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now the word Lord in uh, the book of Ephesians always refers to Christ. Okay, it doesn't refer to God the Father. When God the Father is spoken of, he's spoken of specifically. The Lord here is referring to Christ in the book of Ephesians. So they are called to, and we are called to, I use they and we interchangeably because this is a letter written to the church, uh, called to wisdom that's mindful to discern and understand the Lord's will. Okay, there's an, a wisdom that comes with working at, discerning, and understanding the Lord's will. It means recognizing the nature of the times in which we live and trying to sort out what is Christ's will in this circumstance. It's mindful, too, of the unique period in which we live. 
A passage that I've always enjoyed over the years is in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Just listen to it. I want you to hear what's communicated in this passage. I think it's a, it's a statement of the times in which we live, the unique period that we live in. He has delivered us, past tense, from the domain of darkness and transferred us, past tense, to the kingdom of his beloved son. Okay, Paul here is speaking to the Colossian church that is living in the Roman Empire. Okay? That is living in and under the struggles and persecution of the Roman Empire. And he's saying to them, past tense, he's delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son. That word transferred actually means translated. It's like Scotty beaming you somewhere. Beam me up. You've been beamed into the age to come. We're living in this present evil age, but we're also beamed into, through union with Christ by faith, into the age to come. We straddle two ages. Christians do. The church does. And it is a precarious place. I'm sure if if you spend any time on Facebook, you've seen some of these videos of these guys that are uh, like doing parkour and stuff like that on skyscrapers. You know, they're doing selfies and stuff on the top of this, like, top, very top of this skyscraper. Like, man, what in the world are you thinking? These guys aren't thinking. And, and you'll hear about it from time to time that these guys, one guy died or one guy fell off. I'm like, duh, I'm surprised it didn't happen on that occasion. There's something to recognizing the precarious position that we are in where we straddle two ages, this present evil age, and the age to come. It is a very unique and precarious position. And what it calls for is making an effort to see things the way the Lord of this age to come sees them. To have his eyes on your circumstances. To have have his eyes on your context. To try and make sense of it as he would see it. That's the call and the charge here. Don't be foolish. But instead, understand Christ's will. Now, here's the third exhortation of this passage. The third imperative that sort of invites us in 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 verse 18. Beginning in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But to be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, let, let's spend a moment talking about getting drunk. Okay, this passage here is talking about getting drunk, and it says, uh, uses the phrase, that is debauchery. I want you to appreciate the contrast that he's developing here. He's making a contrast between getting drunk and participating in the debauchery that goes along with it and being filled with the Spirit and some other things that go along with that that we'll see here in just a moment. But in regards to drunkenness, we're talking about an ancient issue, an ancient problem. Noah is the first guy that I know of. Okay, now in Noah's case, I don't know that it's anything sinister. It's after the flood. He plants a vineyard. Um, He takes some of the fruit of the vineyard and he makes a drink out of it and he drinks some of it and he, he drinks enough of it to where he's lost his clothing. And you may know how the story goes. Ham is the one that mocks him. I think that's where hamming it up first came from. Ham mocks him and Shem and Japheth say, man, it's terrible. And they cover, they show respect to Noah. 
Okay, Noah's the first one, at least that I know of, uh, that experienced the problem of drunkenness. But it's apparently an ancient problem, ancient enough to where 2,000 years ago, it makes the pastoral letters as the qualifications for elder and deacon, that they must not be drunkard or they must not be given to an excess or an addiction to wine. Okay? It's apparently an ancient temptation for medication. It's apparently an ancient temptation for coping with the difficulties of the age. Now, let me just go ahead and take you to the, the point of this. The drunkenness is not a solution for the difficulties of this present evil age. Drunkenness is not a solution. It's an easy way to withdraw from the problems but it's not a good solution because it only makes things worse. Adding to the problems of this evil age, the heartache of debauchery. Now, I had to look up debauchery. And what I did instead, even better than looking up debauchery, I went to the, the original Greek word that's translated debauchery here. And that original Greek word means reckless living. Okay, Reckless living that goes along with drunkenness. And if you've been around drunkenness before, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Chances are you had a family member or you may have a family member now. It could be you that we're talking about this morning. You know the heartbreak that goes along with drunkenness. Reckless living to include wrecked cars, wrecked marriages, wrecked jobs, wrecked health, wrecked relationships, maybe even a record to go along with all of the above. The damage and the expense and the stupid stuff that unfolds when you're drunk is manifold, legion, innumerable, the number of things that we could list that go along with drunkenness. It should be a welcome and easy trade-off, but the problem is alcohol is so easy to overdo. It's so accessible, and it's so easy to overdo. Instead of overdoing it, though, Instead of coping with the present evil age by, by staying drunk, instead we should be filled with the Holy Spirit. This charge, this imperative to be filled with the Holy Spirit is the centerpiece of what we've been talking about this morning. It's the centerpiece of the entire passage. It's not located in the center geographically, but it's located in the center contextually. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Before we really consider what that means, I want to just point you back to our context. Let's look behind us and consider this. It's only under the influence of the Holy Spirit that we can walk in wisdom redeeming the time. Only under the influence of the Holy Spirit. It will be only under the influence of the Holy Spirit, looking back again, that we can try to discern what the will of the Lord is. And guess what? It is only under the influence of the Holy Spirit that we will be about what is coming next in the passage. The Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit is central to this passage. So the charge is be filled with the Spirit. Now, if I were to end the sermon right here, I would hope that some people would object. Some people are like, okay, man, that's a short sermon. Let's go get some lunch. I hope that most of you go, wait a second. <laughs> I heard the charge. I heard the imperative but I got to know how. I got to know, first of all, what it means, and I got to know how. Evan McGraw would stop me at home with that question if I left. That's her question would be, okay, Dad, how? I heard what you said, but let's talk about 
what it means, and how you go about it. Let's first talk about what it doesn't mean. I want to be really careful with this. Really careful because there are folks that have, are visiting with us or have visited with us. If they have, that they, I'm not speaking to them necessarily directly. Um, maybe you can encourage them with this. That I want to take great care with this. Some of you I may be speaking of directly. There be, may be folks in our body that have a different view on what I'm, what I'm about to say. I want to move very carefully in the next few minutes. I don't believe being filled with the Holy Spirit means that you have to be speaking in tongues and you have to be slain in the Spirit and you have to be exercising or receiving miracles. Okay? Biblically, you can do some work, and I think it takes a significant amount of work, to make the case for a prayer language that is the language of angels and and things like that. I think you really have to work real hard to develop that as prescriptive teaching. Uh, When it comes to being slain in the Spirit, I really just have no idea what that is. And I'm not being ugly to anybody that that may have happened to you. You may have been at a a, a gathering, a a religious gathering, a revival of some sort where someone um, prayed over you and you fell out. I really... I don't want to minimize that. I just don't know what it is through the lens of the Scripture. I just don't see anything even remotely like that. And I I have to say that if you'll know them by their fruit, that fruit, I fear, is plastic and artificial. And I, I all due respect to anybody that has had an experience. Lots of people have lots of experiences. The real test for our experiences are this right here. It's got to be. It's got to be. So first, dealing with what it isn't. There's lots of stuff going on that people talk about these spirit-filled churches or spirit-focused churches. I don't know what a lot of it is, and I want to be very careful not to call something that the Holy Spirit actually may be doing not from him. But I also don't want to be shy about landing on what we do know. And here's what we do know. We know this. Spirit indwelling. Spirit sealing. And spirit baptizing are bestowed on every single believer at the point of conversion. We can stand right there squarely. There doesn't appear to be any sort of second filling with sensational events that happen at some later date. To be indwelled by the Holy Spirit is synonymous with being a Christian. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Do you have the Spirit indwelling you or not? If you do, you're His and you're sealed. If you don't, you're not. Man, I don't know what a lot of that stuff is, but I know what this says very plainly. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is synonymous with being a Christian. Ministries and folks who make so much of the sign gifts, tongues and healings and... um, miracles and things like that, the sensational proofs of the Holy Spirit in the first century, okay, miss this first. Miss two things, I believe. 
First, they miss that we're talking about something very unique to the early church. We're talking about visible flames and tongues of fire showing up at the birthplace and birthday of the church where people are, are speaking that didn't even know languages, are speaking in actual languages, where people from all over the Roman Empire are hearing their native tongue. We're talking about a day and an age where the apostles are walking around and their shadow falls on somebody and bam, they're healed. We're talking about a very unique period in the life of the church. I think we're talking about in some ways about the birth of the church and the early days of the church in some ways that are similar to the birth of the nation of Israel. In the early days of the nation of Israel, starting with some pretty sensational things. Would you admit, like the plagues? (laughs) I mean, some pretty sensational stuff is going down in Egypt. And the plagues are coming. The parting of the Red Sea. I'm going to call that miraculous and sensational. Bread falling from the sky. Pretty amazing. Okay. Sinai quaking and God speaking from heaven. Pretty unique, period. Water coming from a rock as you strike it. Pretty amazing. The parting of the Jordan. The sensational things in the early days, in the early years of the nation of Israel continue on through the conquest and through the period of the judges. And then there's a really long period of God being God and the nation of Israel just being the nation of Israel and just doing life. Can we possibly be in that period as the church and can we be okay with that? Man, can we pray for miracles and amazing things to happen for sick people or blind people or lame people? Absolutely pray. Man, we've prayed for our own children for their blindness, for Luke and Evan. The elders came and we laid hands on them praying and hoping that God would give them their sight. Can God do that? Absolutely. Are we in a period in an age where I need a miracle to believe in him? Not, not this guy. Not this guy. I've seen enough miracles. Do I hope? Did I hope for that? Did we pray with faith? Man, absolutely. Did we see it? No. I think we're in a period now that reflects more like, there's more of a reflection of life just as the people of God. Do we need miracles like we're unique during that period? I, I think folks miss that first. Secondly, I think that folks miss too that the role of the Holy Spirit is to make much of Christ. I want you to hear what I just said. The role of the Holy Spirit is to make much of Christ. He's like a big arrow pointing at Christ. Jesus said, in fact, I'm going to go away and I'm going to send the helper and he's going to illuminate everything that I've said and done. He's going to explain it. He's going to help you make sense of it. I think that the Holy Spirit, I've heard it said by some folks that the Holy Spirit is the bashful and shy person of the Godhead. It must bother him, churches, that that's all they talk about is the Holy Spirit this and the Holy Spirit that. It must bother him. So what does it mean? If it doesn't mean those things, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, we can look at our passage right here that there's no sign of anything sensational. We're going to look specifically at what unfolds in the next couple of passages after it. And there's nothing really sensational about it. There's no smoke, there's no quaking, there's no people being slain, there's no tongues, anything like that. There's some pretty amazing stuff. 
but there's nothing really especially sensational. So what does it mean? First of all, I think we need to get our prepositions right. The passage says to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The word with can also be translated in or by. Okay, I want to show you something here. I want you to pay really close attention here to this. If we change that word with, of being filled with the Holy Spirit, to by the Holy Spirit, it sort of changes the meaning of it, doesn't it? If you read it as being, being filled with the Holy Spirit, that sounds like something you're going to do, doesn't it? It sounds like Paul charging the church at Ephesus and me charging you this morning, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That sounds like something that you need to get busy with, right? Now, if I change that, that preposition to a by, that changes the tone of it, doesn't it? You need to be filled by the Holy Spirit, which I'll just point out to you, it fits with the Greek uh, words that are used here that are passive in nature, where it turns out you don't fill yourself up with the Holy Spirit. It actually turns out that the Spirit fills you up. So the charge is it to be filled by the Holy Spirit. He's the one doing the filling. We are the vessels being filled. That's important to get straight right up front because I'm going to come back to that. But let's look at the nuts and bolts in the passage here, beginning in verse 19. We'll look at just three of them, and they're gorgeous. I mean, really beautiful. Here's the first one, 19a, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's the first aspect of the Holy Spirit filling you. And in some ways, it is a byproduct of the Holy Spirit filling you, but I'm I'm, going to show you it's more than that. But let's just look at what's taking place here. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Uh, uh, What's behind this, what's behind the tone and the language of it is the sense that that we're singing to one another when we sing together. That we're singing in a way that sort of catechizes one another. That instructs one another. That edifies one another. And I don't know if you were paying attention to the songs that we were singing this morning. But one of them, the first one we're singing is, How great... Is our God, sing with me how great. Think about that for a minute. It's like we're turning to one another on our first song this morning saying, Brad, how great is our God? Jack Kane, how great is our God? We're edifying and building one another up. We're filling one another up with the Holy Spirit. Jerry Morse, how great is our God? Mary Mary Jane, how great is our God? When we're singing We're not just singing vertically, we're singing horizontally. And we're building one another up and equipping one another and edifying one another as we sing. That first song especially, surely it was directed Godward. But did you realize it was directed at one another? Did you realize those 17 little boys and girls that have joined us here officially for the first of the rest of their Sundays? We're being edified and built up and encouraged, and you're turning to little Johnny and little Sally and saying, how great is our God? Man, that's beautiful. It turns out as the Holy Spirit's filling us that there's a horizontal expression of it as we um, catechize one another, as we teach one another, as we edify one another and build one another up. Here's the next next aspect in chapter uh, 5, verse 19b. Look at this next one. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Okay, the first one's horizontal. We're singing to one another. The second part of it is we're, we're singing vertical. We're singing to our Lord with our 
heart. And let me show you how beautiful this is. I mean, it's just it's, it's such a treat. Did you realize in the Old Testament, whenever they had a corporate worship gathering, that there were people that were hired to sing? And they actually weren't hired so much as they were, they were provided for. They, they were set aside to sing the Levitical singers. If you weren't a Levitical singer, you weren't singing. I can just imagine what life would have been like there for me, especially I can imagine my dad. My dad, when I was growing up, I grew up in church sitting next to my dad or at least close enough to my dad where I could hear him or see him. And if somebody's up there singing a solo, my dad's kind of humming. (laughs) Or he's just singing along. I'm like, Dad, shut up. He's singing a solo like it embarrassed me. But now here I am at the age of 49, do the same thing. Now, we don't have a lot of solos, but like is there special music or something? That happens rarely. Man, I'm singing along. Do you realize the beauty of what we've been called to? Sing with your heart. You don't have to borrow the Levitical singer's hearts. You know what's cool, too, is in the Ephesian context where they worshipped Artemis, okay, there's some early indications that in the worship of Artemis that they actually hired pros to do the singing and the songwriting. So in some ways, Paul is speaking to the Jews here and to the Ephesians in that church saying, you don't have to depend on the pros. You can sing with your heart, without distinction. The little ones that joined us today, you can sing to our God. You can sing to your brother and sister sitting next to you. We don't have to depend on the pros. Man, Clint up here and Clint and our worship team, what they're doing every Sunday is they are guiding us together without distinction to sing together with our hearts vertically to our Lord. What a wonderful, wonderful reality. And then the third thing comes from verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first one has to do with this horizontal, excuse me, horizontal expression of worship. The second thing is this vertical expression of worship. And the third thing is this expression of worship that's in every direction and in every circumstance, giving thanks in the name of Christ. Man. There's our three things, the third of which is don't get drunk. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Look carefully how you walk. Don't be foolish, uh, but understand what the Lord's will is, and don't get drunk and be filled by the Holy Spirit. So here's my one-point sermon. Be filled by the Holy Spirit. Be filled by the the Holy Spirit. The question that I asked in the very beginning that I mentioned, the story that I mentioned, this question that was asked of me in the allergy clinic, what is corporate worship? What's well, the ancient thing that we do every week? This is not the answer that I had there in that moment. <laughs> but I can give a more informed answer now. It's the ancient thing that we do every week. It's the thing that the Ephesians did 2,000 years ago. It's an opportunity to do and to be uh, filled with all of the above, the three things that we just talked about the horizontal, the vertical, and the in every direction. We address one another and edify one another. We sing Christ's praise from the heart. We offer thanksgiving to our God. These are the weekly dynamics of corporate worship. How on earth, think about this, how on earth can you expect to make the most of your time and to walk wisely 
to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit without these without these things happening to you, without you participating in these things. It's why corporate worship matters. Here's the way I want you to think about it. The way it reads here in some ways is that these things are the place where we need to be filled up with the Holy Spirit so that we can edify one another and catechize one another, so that we can direct our praise, God word, Christ word specifically, uh, so we can give thanks in all things, but realize that corporate worship also is the gas station for all of the above. It is the gas station where the Holy Spirit fills you up. It is how we are filled up by the Holy Spirit. In some ways, Paul indirectly is telling the Ephesians, don't miss church. It's where you're going to be filled up by the Holy Spirit. It's how you're going to navigate this world wisely. It's how you're going to appreciate this crazy straddled ages that we're straddling, the present evil age and the age to come on the top of a skyscraper. It's how you're going to move wisely. You need to gather and exhort one another horizontally, catechize one another horizontally. You need to direct your worship Christward vertically with your heart not dependent on the pros. And you need to give thanks in all things. We've done all of the above this morning. We've done all of the above this morning.